0: Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be called your people. There's nothing worthy in and of ourselves. But the fact, Lord, that you have set your love upon us from before the foundations of the earth. What can we do in response to that great love and mercy but praise you? And Father, we come to do that this morning through the preaching of your word. We pray, Father, that your voice would be Heard, for you are the living God who speaks through his living word. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, a couple of months ago, I was having some car trouble. And so I took my car over to a mechanic to get it fixed. And while I was there, I decided to step over next door to a Hardee's and have some breakfast. I was preparing for a sermon that weekend, and so after I ordered, I sat down, I got out my pen and my paper, my Bible, I prayed, and I set to work outlining my sermon. It wasn't long before some people there began to take notice, and a gentleman came by and politely asked me what I was doing and what church I served at, and this is where things began to get interesting. When he learned that I serve at Northgate Presbyterian Church, he took off his hat and he said, oh yeah, we used to have fellowship with y'all. And I thought, oh, here we go. (laughs) You see, I thought that morning I had ordered a sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit with a small hash brown and a small coffee. What I didn't realize is that Hardee's was running a special that morning, and with your sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit, small hash brown and small coffee, you also got a free side of a debate on the Greek word baptizo and the incredulity And malpractice of infant baptism. These were the reasons the man's comment was, we used to enjoy fellowship with you. Used to, emphasis there on the past tense. I tell you this story, brothers and sisters, just to emphasize the fact that, listen, I understand, I'm aware, experientially aware, that the issue of baptism can sometimes be contentious. Especially in our area here, in the surrounding community in South Georgia. I want you to know that I understand that, that I'm aware of it. But my desire this morning is not to begin from a place which emphasizes disunity and disagreement, but to begin from a place of unity, agreement, and Christian brotherly affection. And so I want to ask the question first, what is our unity? What is this unity that we share as believers across denominations Our unity, brothers and sisters, is defined and determined by our union with Christ alone. A union which we receive and enter into by faith alone. A faith which comes from the hearing of the word of God alone, that we may live in newness of life to the glory of God alone. So that is to say that our unity as believers, together here this morning, is founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. The supremacy of the gospel and the centrality of the word. There is no other place that we can begin. Because if this word is not true, then there is no gospel. And if there is no gospel, then there is no Christ. And if there's no Christ, then we have no union with God, nor do we have any union to share with one another. And so without these... Without this unity, without the gospel, any discussion of baptism is fruitless. And so let me begin this morning by saying, if you have not received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation, today is the day. Now is the time of salvation. Do not harden your hearts to His voice, because nothing in this sermon will benefit you if you have not believed and rested upon Christ for salvation. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Now, for believers who share in that unity, we can move forward into greater theological discoveries and into the pursuit of greater spiritual maturity. This is what God's Word calls us to do. And so that is the attitude of this sermon this morning. Unity in Christ, maturity in belief, and love in practice. That is the attitude of this sermon. Remember, let us be those who remember the words of Paul as we begin this morning. There is one body one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That is where we begin this morning. Now, having said that, let me also make you aware of the fact, if you haven't noticed, that uh, this morning you chose, or rather I should say that God ordained, that you would attend a Presbyterian and confessionally reformed church. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you ought not to be surprised that what you will hear today is a fundamentally biblical, exegetical, covenantal, and historically reformed understanding of the significance and practice of baptism, particularly as it relates to the baptism of children. I'm giving you fair warning. I know there are many this morning who support our beliefs and practices here in this church, but I also recognize that there may be some here this morning who don't. And I recognize as well that there may be some here uh, who are confused about it, have some questions about it. And I recognize that there still may be others who are simply indifferent or ambivalent towards it. That should cover just about everybody. But my objective this morning, regardless of, of what, which one of those categories that you fall into, my objective this morning in preaching this sermon is threefold. Threefold. First, I want to draw your attention to the glorious significance of baptism as a means by which the promises of God throughout all of Scripture are communicated to us. That is to say that baptism preaches the gospel to us. So this morning, I want you to hear the gospel preached. And because of this, baptism ought to draw out of us a sense of of wonder and gratitude and humility. The Reformers often spoke of a kind of improving of our baptism. Well, what did they mean by that? What they meant is is that every time we witness a baptism, what we should be doing is we should be going back in our minds to the promises of God in His Word, and we should be reflecting on the character of God, on the promises of God, recognizing His incredible grace and mercy, remembering that He is a God who is both transcendent, unbelievably holy, and yet near and imminent. He's a God who's ineffably glorious and yet compassionate and loving towards his creatures. So that's my first objective, that you may walk away with a sense of incredible wonder and awe at the mercy of our God displayed in baptism. Second, I want to demonstrate openly and exegetically Our understanding of why we practice infant baptism, which means I'm going to require something of you this morning, brothers and sisters, more than just to sit there and listen attentively. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me as we go from passage to passage to see what God says. So get your page turning fingers at the ready. Third and finally, I want to emphasize that each one of us, regardless of the conclusions that we come to about baptism at the end of this sermon, Each one of us must answer an important question. And that question is this. What place do children have in the covenant community of God? What place do children have in the covenant community of God? Never in my own life have I seen such a need for Christians to take a deliberate and focused and serious responsibility in teaching, in training, and cultivating the next generation for Christ. If we are not willing, brothers and sisters, if we are not willing to catechize our children, you can be sure that the world will do it for us. And so regardless of where you stand on the issue of baptism, what I hope this sermon will do will motivate you this morning. No matter what stage of life you're in, you could be single, you could be married with kids, you could be married with no kids, you could be a grandparent or a godparent. Regardless, I want you to take an active role and an active responsibility in raising up a godly generation. As believers, as fellow members of the covenant community, I believe this is our responsibility. Now, as we begin this morning, I want you to know as well, there's a lot of preliminary things here, I want you to know that I I stand before you not only as a ruling elder of this church who has promised and vowed before the Lord to teach the doctrines and practices of this church, but I also stand before you this morning... As a father and as a husband. Who together with my household believes wholeheartedly that what we will practice and preach this morning is in accordance with the word of God. So we will preach it unapologetically. We are not here this morning to discuss opinions. You know that. You wouldn't come here if if it were otherwise. But we're gathered to hear the very voice of God speaking through his word. And so I trust that he will speak. I trust that he will convict, he will exhort, and that his word will not return void, but will accomplish all that he intends. Whether that is to convince you of the practice of infant baptism or not, that I leave in the hands of God Almighty. And so, with those things in mind, let us set forward on this great journey through God's word together. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 39, and hear again the very word of our God. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word to his glory. Peter, here speaking these words, stands before a congregation of what the text indicates to be a primarily but not exclusively Jewish audience. Here in the heart of Jerusalem, Peter is preaching the gospel. And he's demonstrating from Old Testament scriptures like Joel and the Psalms that Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies contained in Joel and also in the Psalms. That Christ is the one who came to live and to die at the hands of those people for the sake of their salvation and then to ascend to heaven that he might then pour out the gift of His promised Holy Spirit. And upon hearing this word, the people are cut to the heart. Oh, that people would be cut to the heart at hearing the word of God like these here. And so they ask upon hearing this word, what must we do? What must we do to receive the kingdom of God in Christ and the promise of the Holy Spirit? What must we do to be God's people? And Peter is responding to this question in verse 38. When he says this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There's two questions contained in that answer that Peter gives that I want to address this morning and they are these. What is this promise that Peter is speaking of? And who are the recipients of that promise? What is the promise? And who are the recipients of that promise? So what is the promise? Well, if we look at verse 32, look at verse 32 with me. It says this. Peter is again speaking to these people. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Immediately there, our minds ought to go back to the words of Jesus who told his disciples that upon his ascension, he would send the promised helper, the promised Holy Spirit. And Peter is saying here, what you're witnessing is the fulfillment of that promise. The Holy Spirit has come. And the the promise of the Holy Spirit is also confirmed By the presence of divine tongues, which also come upon the disciples, right? And allow them to speak in the languages of the many nations that were there gathered in Jerusalem. Now, that as well is indicative of who is supposed to receive this promise. It is not simply a promise that is extended to the Jews, but it is a promise that is given to those from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We can also turn the page. Turn the page with me and look at Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4. This is Jesus still speaking to the disciples here, and he says this. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. To wait for what? To wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Briefly, very briefly, this is why, brothers and sisters, the Greek word baptizo cannot simply mean immersion. Why? Well, because the disciples here are promised by Jesus that they will be baptized from the Greek word baptizo with the Holy Spirit. But when we look at the moment at which the disciples received the Holy Spirit, we know that it says in verse 4 of chapter 2 that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The word filled here in the Greek means filled to capacity, or what we might describe as a cup which is filled to the brim. How does one fill a cup? Not by immersion, but by pouring. And this is what we see in the passage which Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2. It says here that the promise of the Holy Spirit is described as that which will be what? Poured out. And again in verse 33, which we've already quoted, Peter describes the spirit which they are witnessing in him as having been poured out upon him. So just to say, brothers if, if, if we're going to, brothers and sisters, if we're going to be biblically faithful and also maintain textual integrity, that means that we need to have a broader understanding of the word baptizo. Yes, it certainly does mean immersion. But it does not mean immersion to the exclusion of the meaning which is clearly portrayed here, which is that of pouring. Now, another important text that speaks of this promise. So again, we're asking the question, what is this promise? Another important text is Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Would you turn there with me? Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Here Paul is describing the benefit of what Christ has accomplished for us by his death and resurrection and the connection of Christ's sacrifice to the faith of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verses 13 through 14 it says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive, what? The promised Spirit through faith. Wow! What is Paul saying there? Paul is saying that Jesus Himself is the blessing of Abraham. That Jesus himself is the substance, both the means and the substance of what was promised to Abraham way back in Genesis chapters 12 and 17. So Paul's understanding of the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is the promise that Peter is speaking of in Acts chapter 2, Paul understands that that promise goes all the way back to Genesis chapters 12 and 17. That means that if we want to understand Peter when he says the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, according to Paul, we need to go back to those texts so that we can understand what Peter is saying. So here we go. Let's turn to those texts together. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, please. Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1-3. through Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you notice that the recipients of this promise is the families of the earth? So take what Paul has said that Christ is the blessing of Abraham and that through Christ comes the promised Holy Spirit and then ask to whom is that blessing promised? Genesis 12 says, The families of the earth, families. Households. The point is this that the promises of God not only apply to families, they come through families. Now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. A couple pages over, Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 7. God continues to speak to Abraham here, reiterating this promise, and he says this. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, this last phrase, I want to zoom in on that really quickly, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is really the essence of the covenant promise. We've talked about this in sermons and in studies. This is what is described as the Emmanuel Principle. The Emmanuel principle. Emmanuel meaning God with us. Throughout Scripture, God promises that He will be our God and we shall be His people. Here's just a few references in which this phrase is repeated. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. Exodus 29, verse 45. Leviticus 26, verse 12. Leviticus 26, verse 45. Numbers 15, verse 41. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 11. Ezekiel 34, verse 31. Ezekiel 37, verse 27. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 8. Jeremiah 30, verse 20. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, what God promises is to be our God and to make us as a people of his own treasured possession. This is what is understood to be as the Emmanuel principle, and it is a promise which is, of course, realized in Christ himself, who is what? Emmanuel, God with us. God and man perfectly joined together. Promise is realized in Christ, and it's also consummated in Revelation 21, where we hear that promise one more time, and it's a promise that is fulfilled for all eternity. right? What does Revelation 21 say? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He shall be their God and they shall be his people. Eternity in the presence of God. That is the purpose of the scriptures. The purpose of all that God has done is to draw us into a relationship with him. That we might be his people and that we would be, that he would be our God, that we would be his people. From Old Testament to new, brothers and sisters, that is the continual thread, which is present throughout all of Scripture. When God covenants with his people, when you see God making promises, what he's promising is his presence. When Christ comes to earth, what is that? But God's presence come to earth. When Christ ascends to heaven and the Holy Spirit comes, what is that but Christ's presence, which is meant to what? Dwell in us. This is what Peter means when he's speaking of the promise. He is taking an expansive view. There's loads of theology in what Peter is saying. He's taking an expansive view to say this is the promise of God from Old Testament to New. It's incredible. Now, when God makes promises, he's also really gracious to give signs that point to those promises. Why? Because we're forgetful. Because we forget the promises of God, do we not, brothers and sisters? And so what God does graciously is give signs that are meant to point to, that are meant to declare, that are meant to proclaim what God has promised so that we might be reminded of that promise. And what is that sign in the Old Testament? Well, Genesis chapter 17, if you're still there, verse 10, it tells us. Here's what it says. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be what? It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Why circumcision particularly? Well, because the covenant promise that's given to Abraham here is one that comes through the offspring of Abraham. So, not to be crude, brothers and sisters, but the very visible, sensible, and daily reminder to Abraham, right? This sign is placed on his reproductive organ to say, through your lineage, through your offspring, will come what I am promising. God's promise would come through a godly offspring. So that tells us that circumcision, as a sign, is meant to point back to the promise of God. Now, this is one purpose of a covenant sign. The other purpose is this, that circumcision as a sign also externally indicated that you are a member of Abraham's household. That is a member of the people to whom God had given these promises. So the sign functions in two ways. It functions to point to the promises of God and it externally indicates that you are a member of the people to whom God has promised. Does that make sense? Now, who was supposed to receive this sign? Abraham, his offspring, that is his children, and those who are part of his household, the sojourner. That is those who are not blood related to Abraham. Verse 12 and 13 tell us that. Those who are not of Abrahamic blood are also, because they're a part of his household, supposed to receive this sign. So we should ask, to whom are the promises of the covenant given? To you, Abraham, to your children, and to all those who are far off. Now does that sound familiar? The promise is for you, for your children, and for all those who are far off, all those whom the Lord calls to Himself. Now, if you'll return to Acts chapter 2 with me, and if you'll consider again who Peter is preaching to, remember, he's not preaching to a collection of 21st century Baptists and Presbyterians standing on either side of this debate. Peter is preaching to a predominantly Jewish audience. One who would have known that reference to the prophet Joel. One who would have known the references to the Psalms. And one, an audience, a congregation of people who would have known that when Peter is speaking of this promise, and when he says those words, when he says the promise is for you, for your children, and for all those who are far off, he's not referring to some utterly new concept. He's not introducing a new promise but he is specifically referring to the promise given through their father and patriarch, Abraham. In other words, brothers and sisters, this is key for understanding this view. The promise and the recipients of the promise do not change. Peter is not changing the story. He is pointing back to the redemptive arc of all of Scripture to say, brothers and sisters, what God promised in covenant to Abraham... That is now here. And this promise, as it was then, is for who? It's for you, for your children, and for the Gentiles. And praise God for that, because guess what, brothers and sisters? Is there anyone here of Jewish descent? I don't mean that as a joke. We are living witnesses to this promise having been fulfilled. The promise is for you, for your children and for the Gentiles whom the Lord was calling to himself." Now, this is why Paul also, back in Galatians, you don't have to turn there this time, but Paul back in Galatians will say that the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So understand this. Did you realize this? That when God is making those promises to Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 and 17, he's preaching the gospel to Abraham. And it is the same gospel which Peter himself is preaching here in Acts chapter 2. The covenant promise and the recipients of that promise do not change. If in fact Peter did intend for the recipients of that promise to change, which would be a momentous change, if he intended that change, we should expect that there would be some instructions to that end, and we should expect that there would have been some questions some difficulty in understanding or accepting that change. My seminary professor, Dr. Ligan Duncan, to whom I'm indebted for his work in covenant theology, he, he put it this way. He said, You mean to tell me that on the morning of Pentecost, children were included in the visible covenant community of God, but by the evening of Pentecost, that was no longer true. But that the children themselves were now responsible for a personal, individual profession of their own faith before they could be considered part of the covenant community. You mean to tell me that? And nobody had a single question about it. Nobody raised their head and said, Oh, wait a minute. Now, understand, brothers and sisters, this is an argument from silence, and so we have to be careful. The the, the case for infant baptism doesn't stand or fall on this point, but it's an important point that we need to wrestle with because understand that if Peter intended in this sermon to change and alter the biblical conception of children and their belonging to the covenant community of God, we should expect that there would be some specific instructions attached to that. Imagine for just a moment that you are a Jewish father standing in that crowd listening to Peter. Imagine that you've raised your children according to the customs and commands of the Old Testament where children under your representative headship and authority are considered part of the visible covenant community of God. Imagine that that's you. Now imagine that in this sermon, Peter has just turned that on its head and now your children who were before that sermon a part of the visible covenant community of God now no longer have that same status of belonging. But now they must at some point undisclosed age of accountability, profess their own faith, then be baptized, and only then are they allowed to be a part of the covenant community. Listen, as a father, I think I would have some questions. In fact, I think there would be a flurry of hastily typed emails and parent-teacher conferences. What do you mean my child is no longer a part of the covenant community? What age can they become a part of it? How am I to know? How am I to know if my children have truly grasped the significance of the gospel so that I can trust what they say and trust that they're making an accurate profession of faith? Notice we don't see any of that here, nor do we see any of it throughout the uh, the New Testament. Why? Because Peter is not preaching a different gospel than the one preached to Abraham. He isn't changing the promise, and he's not changing the recipients of that promise. The fact that Peter here explicitly mentions children as those who are included as recipients of the promise means that children are intended to receive both the sign of the covenant and the significance of that as well. Now, if the promise hasn't changed and the recipients of the promise haven't changed, then what has changed? What changes in the New Testament? Well, what changes, brothers and sisters, is the covenant sign. If the sign in the Old Testament, if the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was circumcision, what is the sign of the covenant in the New Testament, in the New Covenant? Baptism. And with regard to this change, there is quite a bit of writing and quite a bit of explanation throughout the New Testament. Now, circumcision, which formerly was the sign, which indicated that you are a part of the covenant community of God, now that's no longer The case now, what identifies you as being part of that covenant community is the external sign of baptism, which signifies the application of those same promises unto you. And if we understand prophecy and fulfillment, this should make sense to us, right? If circumcision was a sign which pointed to an offspring that would come through Abraham, then when that promised offspring came, and he did, when Christ came as the fulfillment of that promise, then circumcision is no longer an accurate sign because circumcision pointed to the coming of Christ who was the offspring of Abraham. So what we need now then is actually a new covenant sign that does what? That points to Christ and his ministry. What is that sign? Baptism. Which points to the ministry and the accomplishment of all that Christ came to do. Signifying his death, his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Again, if you know your New Testament well, you know that this was a very difficult change for the Jewish people to accept. In almost every single epistle, Paul has to address this issue. The Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 has to issue a declaration with regard to the change from circumcision to baptism, saying the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, they need to be baptized. Peter himself, the one preaching this sermon, falls into the temptation to side with the Judaizers to drift back towards a more Jewish understanding of the covenant, and Paul has to rebuke him. Why? Because this change was difficult to accept. The Jews were arguing, they were saying, hey, if you're going to be a member of the covenant community of God, they understood, the promises are the same. But if you're going to be a member of the covenant community, you need to be circumcised. That's the way it's been for thousands of years. But the gospel... And the apostles who preached it says no in response. The external sign of the covenant is not circumcision. It's baptism. And Christ, of course, proclaims this in Matthew 28. Right? He doesn't say, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, circumcising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says what? Go therefore, make disciples and baptize them. The sign of the new covenant is baptism. Now, Let me be clear. I'm not saying that baptism and circumcision have a one-to-one absolute correlation. They are not the same thing. Externally, they are very different. But Scripture is clear that both baptism and circumcision point to the same spiritual reality. That is, they point to the same promise. The promise of salvation in Christ. Circumcision pointed forward to the coming of Christ as the offspring of Abraham. Baptism points back to the life, death, and ministry of Of Christ. Christ is the substance, therefore, of both. And this is made clear in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. This is the last scripture I'll ask you to turn to. Would you turn there with me? Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says this. In him, that is in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is not done by hand. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying two things there. He's saying that baptism is the new circumcision. He says, right, in Christ you were circumcised. How were you circumcised in Christ? By being buried with him in baptism. Therefore, Paul is saying that baptism is the new covenant sign. Baptism is the new circumcision. Now, he's also saying something else that is an essential point, and we cannot miss this. He is saying that baptism, as well as circumcision, must be confirmed. That is that the external sign, the external sign of the covenant must be confirmed. One cannot simply receive the external sign. One cannot simply be circumcised externally. One cannot simply be baptized externally. But that covenant sign must be confirmed internally. And this, again, is not a new concept. Uh, My father read from Deuteronomy chapter 10 in which Moses addresses the people of God and says to them this circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of your heart. What is Moses saying? He's saying prove. He's saying confirm your external circumcision by a true internal circumcision. Circumcise your hearts. That is to say that the bare external sign of circumcision is not sufficient to save. Nor is the bare external sign of baptism sufficient to save. The promises of God, which were communicated through circumcision, now communicated through baptism, must be confirmed. And how are they confirmed? They are confirmed by the presence of true faith. A true faith which exhibits lifelong true obedience to the ways of God. Now, this helps us to understand how Peter's instructions here in Acts 2 apply to both adults and to children. Right? Peter tells the congregation that they must repent and be baptized. Now, what we do is we, I think we mistakenly take that to mean that repentance must always precede baptism. In which case it would be impossible for Peter to be including children in those instructions since children cannot repent. All Elias can do is make noise. (laughs) But since Peter is speaking to adults and children, it makes sense that the scope of his instructions would include both an admonition to receive the covenant sign, baptism, as well as to confirm what that sign points to, repentance, which is evidence of true faith. Both are marks of a true believer. But consider, understand that repentance, brothers and sisters, is a fruit. It is a result of the inward working of the Holy Spirit. So true repentance comes from true faith, and true faith is demonstrated in a lifelong commitment to God. Repentance is not simply a one-time act that, that then opens the door for baptism. Here's what I would say instead. Here's how repentance and baptism go together. Baptism as an external covenant sign marks and identifies one as being part of the visible covenant community of God and it declares the promised presence of God to that individual. Repentance as a fruit of true faith is an ongoing lifelong confirmation of what was promised in baptism. Baptism promises the Holy Spirit, and repentance confirms the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me put it this way. Take take this home with you. If nothing else, take this home with you. Baptism is the covenant promise of God applied. Faith is the covenant promise of God confirmed. Let me say that one more time. Baptism is the covenant promise of God applied. Faith is the covenant promise of God confirmed. Confirmed. So in that sense, brothers and sisters, a child may receive the covenant sign of baptism and yet they must still confirm that baptism by the presence of true faith, which is demonstrated in a life which is dedicated in heart, soul, mind and strength to God alone. You have no doubt heard it said that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. That is a true statement. But what we must understand, brothers and sisters, is that the outward sign and the inward reality are not necessarily instantaneous. Just as one could be circumcised in the flesh, but not circumcised in the heart, so one can also be baptized in the body, but not baptized in the heart. We see this quite often. The external sign must be confirmed. But Scripture indicates that that confirmation, that evidence of true faith, it doesn't always precede the covenant sign. Let me give you an example from Scripture. We know that Abraham believed the promises of God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is to say that Abraham had faith in the promises of God. And Scripture tells us that Abraham had this faith before being circumcised. So that is to say that Abraham was not justified because of his circumcision. He wasn't saved because of his circumcision. And there we have an example, right? Abraham has faith, and then he's circumcised. So in that instance, yes, we do have an instance in which faith precedes the covenant sign. But let me ask you this. Who did God command Abraham to circumcise? Not only himself, but also his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, at eight days old. Were either one of them, at eight days old, able to profess the same faith that Abraham had professed? But both received the covenant sign like Abraham did. Who confirmed the promises of that covenant sign? There was one of those two sons who confirmed that promise. Who was it? It was Isaac. Isaac confirmed the promises. Brothers and sisters, when we baptize our children, we're not baptizing them because they've evidenced the same faith That Abraham had. We are baptizing them to apply to them. The covenant sign saying. The promises that were given to Abraham. Also apply to you. But what that child must do. What Elias and David must do. Is they must confirm. That promise. By the evidence of true faith. Like Isaac. They have to walk in the footsteps. And faith of their father Abraham. And this is why we must teach them and why we must teach them well. We as parents and fellow members of the covenant community, we must exhaust ourselves in prayer, in teaching, in guiding, in raising, and in cultivating our covenant children to desire to confirm that promise of God which is now today being applied to them. That will be my prayer for him. That he grows to confirm his covenant sign. I really believe that so much of our misunderstanding with regard to baptism comes from a more westernized and individualistic view which sees baptism as predominantly a profession of our faith unto God, an outward sign of our commitment unto God. But the covenantal view, the one presented here, and the one that I believe is most in accordance with the continuity of the Old Testament and the New, sees baptism not predominantly as a declaration of our commitment to God, but as a declaration of God's commitment unto us. A commitment to fulfill his covenant promises in Christ. Promises given to us and to our children and to all those who are far off, all those who God calls near. This is why baptism is meant to encourage us and assure us. If baptism was primarily about our commitment unto God, that's not very reassuring. The fire of our faith is often cold, is it not? Our grip upon the promises of God is often weak. Let Elias get a hold of your finger. He's got a pretty good grip. But if the efficacy of his baptism is based on his grip, there's no surety in that. But if the significance of baptism rests in the promises of God, given to us in the Word of God, in which God declares His everlasting commitment to be our God and to make us as a people for His own treasured possession, that, brothers and sisters, is a sure and steady anchor for the soul. Just as the author of Hebrews said, when God made that promise to Abraham, He swore by His own name. Why? Because there was none greater by which He could swear. And so, between two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we may have this as a sure and steady anchor for the soul. Our God is the God who promises. And the God who keeps His promises. Amen! (laughs) Brothers and sisters, baptism is not meaningful. It is not eternally significant because of our commitment unto God. Please understand that. Yes, we are declaring that we are God's people. But it is not because of the strength of our confession that that is true. It is true because God has covenanted with us. He has promised us himself. And he took the initiative to do all that was necessary to establish and maintain and secure that relationship. And praise God that he did. Baptism is meaningful and eternally significant. Because in baptism the promises of God Almighty are promised unto us. God declares to us, I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is the gospel applied. My last words to you, brothers and sisters, are this confirm your baptism. Make sure the promise in your life, as we get ready to baptize these children, think back on your own baptism and think of the many times at which your faith has faltered. But the evidence Of God's commitment unto you is the fact that you are here this morning, that you are hearing God's word, and that he is working in and through you his purposes for his glory, a work which he will complete at the day of Christ. Remember those promises. And here are these final words, again from Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 16, as these children come before us. Now the people were bringing even infants unto Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for unto them belongs the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel. We stand in awe of your love. A love which you set upon us from before the foundations of the earth were formed. A love that is pure. A love that is full. A love that is abounding, never ending, a fountain of grace ever flowing. We thank you, Lord, that you promise to save us though we are unable to save ourselves. That you did not leave us, Lord, to perish and wallow in our sins, but you redeemed us for the glory of your great name. And Father, we pray as the promises of your word, which are applied through baptism today, we pray, Lord, that those promises would be confirmed by the fire of the faith in our hearts that you give to us through your Holy Spirit. Father, may we together today, as we take hold of these promises, may we confirm our baptism as we confirm what you have promised, that we are your people. And we praise you and thank you unendingly that you are our God. In Jesus' name, amen.